You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's weekly check-in webinar during this coronavirus pandemic. My name is Sarah Kift and I'm your host for today. So when you use the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. Um, and we're doing something new today. At the end of the presentation, you'll be able to see Corey and I via video as we answer your questions. So stay tuned for that. We're going to test that out today. Just quickly here, um, let me know what your role is in your organization. So are you a manager or a supervisor? Are you frontline staff? Are you outreach or street worker? Are you support staff? So maintenance, food services, admin, all kinds of other things that are really crucial to running an organization. And if you choose other, if you could type into the question section um, and let me know um, who you are. Got a couple of EDs on the line, some managers, some frontline people. It's great. Let's see who we've got. Great. It's great to have a number of uh, leaders here with us today. Um, you guys are shouldering a lot of the decision making and compliance and uh, pivoting in your organization. So it's really good to have you here. Um, we'd love to hear your examples and, and share what you're struggling with even um, and how we can support you in that. All right. And I'm really thankful um, to welcome Corey Ranger back on the line today. <clears throat> Pardon me. He's been so amazing. Uh, he just keeps pulling together a ton of information, as well as sharing from his own experience of working on the front lines in the homelessness encampments in Victoria. He's also working with VHA and a bunch of other policymakers and health organizations advocating for better care for the homeless, as well as people who are um, using and he's working on harm reduction strategies and tips. And I've kind of lost track of all the different jobs that he's doing right now in the midst of this crisis. So um, I'm going to let Corey fill in the blanks on that. But just so you know, he's a registered nurse. He has a ton of experience working in harm reduction across Alberta and BC. He's also a post-secondary instructor for community and mental health nursing. And he's an advocate for evidence-informed, pragmatic public policy. So Corey, thank you for being here again today. And thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say, Sarah, I think I've also started to lose track of, of all of the different things um, that that is going on right now. And, um, you know, I had a, have a little anecdote to start the day is that uh, my friend who I used to work in supervised consumption with in Alberta, she uh, texted me the other day and said, oh, I'm responsible for for managing the the quarantine hotels. Um, and, and she's like, isn't this a, such a great opportunity? <laughs> and I was like, I feel like maybe right now they're just like, we need people. And, and if you don't say no, then they're going to keep giving you things to do um, yeah. because there's such a great need right now. Right. And, and there's a lack of resources. There's a lack of staffing availability. So if you're that, if you're a yes person, this can be a very detrimental time for you because um, the, the pile on will happen and it, and it is very real. So thank you everyone for attending today. Um, 
I'll start off by saying this week was a particularly tough week, as mm-hmm. I am sure it has been for each and every one of you. The more this crisis evolves, the more it shines a very unflattering light on our health and social services. It's also just been hard for everyone, and we need to acknowledge that. I spoke with a colleague one night who called me at midnight. Uh, she said that she had virtual meetings all day, every day, and in every single one that she was in, somebody ended up crying in the end. So if you're stressed, if you're feeling anxious, if you're frustrated or furious, just know that your feelings and experiences are valid. This is a difficult time for people. As Sarah said, my name is Corey Ranger. I'm a registered nurse by trade. Uh, Most of my career I've spent in Alberta focusing on harm reduction, supervised consumption services, take-home naloxone, um, and and bloodborne pathogens, as well as some some work with infectious disease and setting up uh, for influenza protocols. When COVID-19 started to emerge, I paid really close attention um, and I did my research early. I started offering uh, webinars through HSABC and also just helping folks make infographics so that they can support their staff. Um, That evolved into uh, a role now where I sit on the Victoria Inner City COVID response team uh, or Vicar. I work with VHA to support the uh, homeless encampment parks, the 24-hour shelters that are that are set up across Victoria, uh, as well as working with local and island harm reduction agencies in order to establish outbreak protocols and, and safety, applying those public health um, protocols and approaches to the very difficult local context that is harm reduction and low barrier services. Um, because I've said this many times before, and I'll say it again, Broader public health recommendations rarely take into consideration the challenges of of harm reduction, of shelter work, of low barrier, low threshold services. And so it's really difficult when you're looking at those policies and procedures and you're thinking to yourself, how does this actually work? How am I actually going to apply this to where I'm working? Um, That's what I'm trying to do to focus on uh, on with people is is how can we support you so that you can do the very best within the confines and and constrictions of your own workplace. Uh, And I'm hopeful that we can continue to work together to provide you updates, answer your questions and support you in whatever way best works for you. So before we get started today, I would like to recognize that colonization and the institutional oppressors that continue to permeate in our society have dramatically impacted Indigenous people who call this land home. The host of disproportionate impacts towards Indigenous peoples are far-reaching and span generations. A land acknowledgement is not enough, not even remotely when it comes to eliminating structural and historical barriers erected through colonization. It is, however, a small step in committing to a relationship of humility and collaboration. It is with that spirit today uh, that I acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen people on whose traditional territory I stand on today and the Songhees, the Squamalt, and Wissanich peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. So let's say that you're working and you are have been redeployed to work on outreach and you encounter someone who's symptomatic. They have a dry cough, they have a fever, they're complaining of shortness of breath. What's your response? What are you going to do? Let's say that you have to respond to an overdose and it's some on someone who hasn't really shown any symptoms. What kind of protocol should you take? What kind of precautions are necessary? What if they're symptomatic or they're confirmed positive for COVID? Does your response change? Do your precautions then become more intensive? Let's say that you're working at the shelter and one of your clients is going through withdrawal. 
because there's a lack of available drugs on the streets. They just can't keep up with it. And so they start to feel dope sickness. What are you going to do? Let's say that you're working at the shelter and a coworker is incorrectly using their gloves and mask. How do you approach this situation in a way that promotes uh, trust and, and change? Let's say that you're working and you get recommendations to wear certain PPE, but you just don't have that available. How are you going to mobilize some strategies so that you make sure you're protecting yourself, your staff, and the clients that you work with? We're going to try to answer some of the other questions, too, that have really been percolating lately. And that revolves around things like, when do I wear a mask? What kind of mask should I wear? What about cloth masks? I can't guarantee that at the end of this webinar, you'll have absolutely every single answer because the updates are changing every single day. And it's important that we do our best to stay on top of recommendations. But what I can do is arm you with the tools and provide you with the resources so that you can navigate through situations that are unprecedented at this time. So let's just take a minute here. Um, I'm going to launch this poll, but if, you choose other, please type that into the question section so that we really know uh, what to focus on today. Um, what's the biggest challenge or the hardest thing that you're facing in your work right now? And you can choose all that apply. Um, it's not about the numbers here. It's about the answers. Um, is it a lack of P PPE or supplies or resources? Is it just confusion and overwhelm about the avalanche of information, masks, news? Is it organization and planning? So maybe you're pivoting your services or staffing is a problem or you're looking down the road to funding. Um, enforcement of social distancing and other measures can be very difficult, especially in uh, the communities we serve because COVID-19 is just another threat on top of many other things that people are dealing with every day in their lives. And um, yeah, that other box is there as well. This is anonymous, so please share from your heart. Um, and you can type your comments into the question section and uh, only I can see them. Um, I can summarize them and share them with the group though. So um, I'm just going to give a couple seconds for more people to vote here, but I definitely want to echo what Corey said, and that is it's it's been a tough week. I had a crash on Saturday, Sunday, where I was overwhelmed by the news. I was tired of all the restrictions. Um, I just, yeah, and I think a lot of people are experiencing that. We're being faced with this uncertain threat um, that's, we're told that it's coming and it might already be happening, but um, it's invisible and we're getting mixed information about what to do about it. Um, so something that people are typing in here as well is the concern around um, getting sick and worried about being exposed, um, you know, as a person, as a staff member, going home to your family. All of these things are, are hard to think about and face. And then there's a lot of comments here around needing logical direction and that that's clear because everybody is getting fearful and we're seeing a lot of illogical decision making we're emotionally dysregulated and there's just a lot of mixed information out there so um, this is a place where you can ask your questions and we can either answer them or sort through some of the 
directives that are out there. Corey is actually every day out on the streets in the encampments working with all kinds of people. And so um, he really does have the latest on what's going on. So thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm just going to share the results of that for you, Corey. Oh, nice even spread of, of things to be concerned about. Um, and, and, you know, I'll add to this as well. I think um, one thing that's really dawned on me lately um, is that there are, we've been in emergency mode now for a few weeks mm -hmm. and, and everybody's been at this state of, of high tension, hypervigilance, and we haven't seen a ton of actual positive results uh, hit our population, especially the more rural and remote that you get. And it causes even more challenges for people because they start to become complacent. They're, they're thinking like, well, does this actually apply to me? Is that, are these things that I am really going to be impacted with? And I see that a lot with the clients and with the community members that we work with. They hear about these concerns about COVID, but they're not actively seeing it. We're not seeing the same kind of carnage that we've seen in New York and Italy and Spain and China. And yet we're here and we're taking every precaution we can to try and keep people safe. And it almost reaches this point of exhaustion where you're thinking, what are we actually doing? Like it's your, your practices, your protocols, they stop, start to lose meaning in a sense. And so it's really important um, to, to acknowledge both the frustrations that come with that, but to also acknowledge the fact that the fact that we haven't seen such rise in numbers might mean that the protective measures that we've put into place are working at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important that we keep that vigilance going and that we keep ourselves honest and we keep ourselves accountable when it comes to doing the very best that we can in order to prevent the spread of COVID. Yeah. All right. And another thing that came up here I just want to highlight is that it is hard right now for some of us in our organizations because we can't interact directly with our clients. So maybe you're in a counseling or an addictions program or um, maybe you've closed your uh, kitchen or you're, you know, you're doing everybody's just doing outreach. Um, and so there's some challenges there around connection as well. And social distancing is a really cold term. You know, like we, we, we're constantly saying, make sure that you're socially distanced, but, but our clients, the people that we work with, they're already quite disconnected from, from health and social services, from social support networks. And so to many of them, the social distancing, uh, it can dramatically impact their health. It can dramatically impact their, their mental health and their, and their state of well-being. And so there's been a big push to switch people from the concept of social distancing to talking about physical distancing while maintaining social connection. And that's a very challenging thing to do right now. I have uh, a, a confession to make with everybody who's on the call. Um, since I started doing this work, I have had to move into my garage in order to um, continue working with people on the front lines while trying my best to keep um, my my family safe. I have a, a child who is uh, immune compromised. And so if she were to uh, get sick with COVID, it could be something that can really impact her. And so if you hear some ambient noise, it's because my children like to open the garage door and yell <laughs> demands to me at random times. And, and that is relatively out of my own control at this point in time. So I apologize for that. 
That's okay. I think we're all figuring out the work from <laughs> home, having kids at home all the time, balance, if we have our kiddos or family members. I was listening to someone on the radio, um, and she said that she is currently broadcasting from her closet because her her children are home and that they won't give her any waking moment of reprieve or or silence. And it was a real, very genuine moment on the radio where I could actually hear this person's frustration that they're just like living in their closet like Harry Potter, trying to uh, do the best they can with what they have while children are screaming outside and she's live on the radio. And I thought, you know, if that isn't just the hallmark feeling that people have right now during this crisis, then I don't know what is. Yeah. So last week, Sarah had this fantastic idea. Let's just pause for a moment, take a collective breath and check in. I'll admit that I'm someone who can compartmentalize feelings and, and usually I exist really well in crisis mode for as long as necessary. But we all have our breaking points. I'm going to start off by telling you about my day yesterday. Uh, and then I want to open the floor a little bit just to um, let people have the opportunity to, to express some of their, their concerns or frustrations. So yesterday I started work at eight o'clock in the morning working at the homeless encampments. And in between each hour, I had a different phone meeting, either with the city or with the health authority or uh, various other stakeholders, peer support groups who are all trying to coordinate their efforts in the parks. And I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot and I'm in the conference call and someone bangs on my window and says, there's an overdose in the bathroom. And so I rip off my headphones and I run to the bathroom and I had to pull someone out of the sink because they had fallen into the sink while it was running and I had to respond to an overdose and I'm trying to maintain all of these precautions, make sure that I'm keeping myself safe, make sure that I'm keeping the person who's overdose safe, uh, coordinate with EMS, calm down the other campers who are around. And I went back to my car and before I could even log back into my call, I just had to take a moment because it suddenly all hit me that this is just so different and this is something that's so challenging and and it really hit me and it stuck with me for a while so now's your opportunity are any of you feeling stressed are any of you tired are you frustrated do you feel like you're screaming into the void and trying to get services but you just can't get there i'd like to talk about that for a minute and i'd like you to give you the opportunity to share some of your experiences if that's okay yeah, and this is anonymous. Like you can just if you need this moment right now, maybe this is the first moment that you've had to reflect and say, this is really shitty or I'm really overwhelmed or I'm really angry with um you know the directives cuz we can't follow them or whatever is going on for you. Um you don't have to type anything in, but uh just take that moment. Because I know I identify with Corey. I, I also am really good. A lot of us are really, really good in a crisis. We're, that's why we do the work we do. We're really good at being calm, at being present, at knowing what the next thing is. We're really uh, creative. Um, we're hands-on. And yet this crisis has been going on for a long time. And so um, there might be some feelings around that. I think that people are just thinking about it and that's okay. You don't have to type anything in, but um, know that this is a, this is a safe space for you today. 
And ask yeah. any question, even if you think it's a one that you haven't been able to ask your colleagues or your coworkers or your friends or family, you can ask it here. So while you take a chance to reflect on that, um, I will also just acknowledge that everybody has something called a window of tolerance. And you've probably heard this statement before. And some of us have a very wide window where we can tolerate a lot of change. We can tolerate a lot of stressors. And some of us have a more narrow window where stressors or changes might create more anxiety um, than it may see in others. And, and all of that is okay. Um, yesterday, after I had my little moment, I was really fortunate to connect with a colleague who, who has really worked through some challenging times in the past, um, who has really, you know, uh, innovated programming during the peak of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, who, who's been a champion for harm reduction, even before harm reduction was even something that people were willing to talk about. Um, and, and she said something really profound to me that I wanted to share with you. Um, she said, remember, everything you do makes a difference to the people and nothing you do will fix the system. And that really stuck with me. Do the best you can with what you have. Don't expect that you can change absolutely everything about the system in this instance but do the very best you can with what you have because the people you're working for, the people you're putting those hours in for, that's who you're doing it for. And I just want to say thank you. People are just typing in here. I'm not going to share everything, but there's some frustration and upset around our, our institutions not being prepared or that we've been, we've been enduring a public health crisis in terms of, overdose for many years <laughs> and only now are things being mobilized so quickly and it's it can be really it can bring up some anger and sadness to realize that we could have mobilized you know had there been the political will so yeah there's some feelings out there thank you for sharing absolutely yeah it, it is truly a shame that we needed to wait for a pandemic in order to really prompt some some pragmatic policy change when we knew what changes would be effective before we got into this mess so i completely agree with that and and, and those are valid concerns we do have a lot to talk about today and only a short amount of time to do that uh, with that being said i'm going to do my best not to overload you with information there is a subtle balance between arming you with the tools that you need and creating panic with unnecessary medical jargon. I'll do my best to achieve that balance today. There's a series of infographics, as Sarah said, that have been made available. Updates are coming in very quickly. Uh, some of the new materials from Vancouver Coastal Health um, that we've shared today are really, really excellent tools, and they provide some really clear direction when some of the other directions seemed vague or maybe not as applicable to your workplace setting as it was, um, as it is now. And so uh, I do encourage you to use those handouts um, to make use of them and, and to continue asking questions because when we field these questions, uh, we find better ways to support you and provide the information that you need in order to continue doing your work. We're going to do a little bit of a recap of COVID, but first, we'll of course talk a little bit about some of those discrepancies that have come from some of our institutions. So speaking of frequent updates and spiraling into the vortex of social media online, there's been a massive debate about airborne versus droplet precautions, uh, and it's actually created a pretty intense divide in academia, researchers, frontliners, and just about everybody who's been affected by COVID-19. In some instances, this division has led to contradicting information, which can unfortunately misguide our policies and personal practices. 
The same goes for the ongoing debate around mask usage, and we'll try to cover that today for you as well. There's so much discrepancies that the World Health Organization felt it prudent in order to send this document out there, uh, to send this infographic out there saying COVID-19 is not airborne. There was recent studies from the Johns Hopkins uh, Institution that said maybe COVID is airborne, um, but the World Health Organization decided that they needed to debunk that myth. Uh, because we really need to be singing from the same songbook and applying the same practices uh, to every instance that we work in. There are instances where COVID does become airborne, and we'll talk about aerosolizing, generating medical procedures soon. Um, but this is just a fact check that happened um, that the World Health Organization wanted to share with everybody. I swear, every time I try to move forward with this thing, and then it skips forward too. I'll get to it, don't worry. So speaking of the discrepancies in public health, you know, we've been told time and time again, don't wear a mask unless you're in high risk situations. Um, we've been told cloth masks are ineffective. And then most recently from our, from our medical officer of health, Bonnie Henry, uh, she reiterated that they're not necessary if you're healthy, but she, now she's no longer advising you that you don't wear one. And so we're starting to see a bit of a transition in terms of recommendations around masks. And I want to explain that phenomenon a little bit. What people have noticed is that there are countries out there who have been uh, more effective at flattening the curve, who have been more effective at reducing the disease transmission for COVID. And what people have observed is that those countries are also countries where there's lots of mask usage happening. And so people made that observation and they tried to draw the connection that mask usage therefore decreases COVID transmission. Now, I'm not going to deny that. And we'll talk a little bit more about effective use of masks. But those countries also have other factors that have protected them and protected the people in their country. Some of those factors include really, really strict social isolation protocols, really, really strict quarantine protocols. There are countries out there right now that are using GPS tracking to make sure that positive COVID cases are no longer going out into public spaces or participating in gatherings. So when we talk about that mask usage being the reason why those countries have less transmission, that's called a confounding variable because there's many other variables. There's many other factors that may also contribute to that reduction in disease transmission. A little bit about in the media. Uh, the reason why I show this is um, first just to, to highlight um, how some of the uh, emergency protocols have been put in place, some of the rising prevalence of COVID uh, globally, and uh, some of the things that have happened most recently is in New York because they've been hit so hard by it. Um, they have actually brought in the U.S. Navy vessel Comfort, which is a floating hospital, and they are supporting people in New York's hospitals in order to uh, meet the, the rising surge and demand of COVID patients. The last time the U.S. Navy vessel Comfort was in New York was during 9-11. Uh, and so that speaks a little bit to the urgency and the severity of this crisis. The other picture I've shown you here is Nevada uh, what they've done in order to make sure social distancing happens in populations that are marginalized and impoverished. And the reason why I show you this is because what does public health and social distancing and, and, and self-isolation mean to people who are already isolated? What it means to people is that there's diminished access to services, increases in overdose death, increase in deaths of, de deaths of despair, 
it means that social connection, housing, and other protective me mechanisms are a matter of privilege. It also means that housing should be a human right, plain and simple. We cannot warehouse people and do what they've done in Nevada. And unfortunately, this is not a unique situation. It is something that happens around the world. And it's something that happens to various degrees, even in our own backyard. I work in the homeless encampments at the parks in Victoria, and I'll be the first to say that I'm adamantly against this strategy. We should be putting roofs over people's heads. We should not be warehousing them in open air parks. So a little bit of a recap here about what coronavirus is. Coronavirus is spread through droplets. What that means is that it can either come through a cough or a sneeze. Someone can cough or sneeze into their hands and then you can touch their hands and touch your face, which is a mechanism of transmission. Or it can even be that someone coughs or sneezes onto a surface and then you touch that surface at some point in time and then touch your face. And when viruses live on surfaces, they're called fomites. And with COVID, COVID could live between 12 and 24 hours on surfaces, depending on what type of surface it is. That's why disinfection is so important. The most effective mechanisms that we can utilize in order to protect ourselves against COVID is regular, thorough, and effective hand washing, regular disinfection, early detection and screening, coupled with isolation, and communication about the importance of social distancing. So those are very simple public health practices, but they are paramount to making sure that we try to flatten the curve. The three hallmark symptoms of COVID-19 are fever, which is anything above 38 degrees Celsius, a cough, which is usually dry, and shortness of breath. People often describe this as feeling like there's an elephant sitting on their chest or there's a rubber band tied around their chest and it's just really hard to get some air. We talk a lot about social distancing, but people don't often know what that means. Social distancing refers to being six feet or two meters away from someone. Luckily, soap and water is the most effective hand cleanser. The reason why soap and water is so effective, even though, even though people want to go towards hand sanitizers more often than not, um, is because COVID is essentially a ball of RNA surrounded by proteins and then held together by grease. When you use soap, so it breaks down that grease and the entire virus breaks apart. If you don't have soap and water, the most effective hand cleanser then is hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol. When you're disinfecting areas, you need to make sure that you're using alcohol solutions with at least 70% alcohol or diluted household bleach. You cannot just spray bleach and then wipe a surface. Spray and wipes are just for show. You need to make sure that you clean the area with soap and water first, and then you apply disinfectant, and then you wipe it down about 10 minutes afterwards. We'll talk a little bit more about recommendations around mask wearing, but for sure, wear a face mask to cover your coughs and sneezes. And if anybody is symptomatic, we should be getting them to wear a mask and encouraging them to do frequent hand washing. There are a lot of people who are working, our coworkers, our employees, who may be immune compromised or may have a pre-existing health condition that can put them at greater risk for complications related to COVID-19. Some of those conditions include taking cancer drugs, um, having chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD. If you are someone who has one of those pre-existing health conditions or something else that impacts your immune system, you should be letting your manager know 
and your manager should be making a safe space for you to be comfortable letting them know about these concerns. When you're working, it's important to designate someone as uh, the person who's responsible for monitoring clients for symptoms. At the place that I work with, we have a huddle at the start of the day and we assign someone to make sure that we're checking on people and we're monitoring symptoms and we're trying to identify trends early on. I'll talk to you a little bit about what you need to do if you identify someone who's positive or you suspect is positive. But it's important that we're making sure we're keeping tabs on people and that we're keeping an eye on them at this very challenging time. When people ask why you're doing this, make sure you know that these precautions are, are being taken in order to keep them safe. Like I said, there's a lot of complacency right now because we haven't seen COVID hit this population very significantly yet. And so a lot of the folks that I work with on the street, some of them express ambivalence that this even exists. They express like they, they, they're saying, well, how do I know this is even a thing? Right. And, and some of them even believe that it's just another mechanism in which health authorities or governments can control them. And so now's the time when we need to use our relationships in order to support people and explain to them, this is, we agree, this is very challenging, but we're doing this to try to keep you safe right now. I put this posting up here from Dr. Bonnie Henry um, through CDC, because this is the first time that we've really seen in our country some honest projections of what this crisis is going to look like. Right now, we're working on two-week intervals. Everybody thinks flatten the curve and we'll get back to work. And finally, we got someone to just tell us outright, uh, we're going to be in some form of this until we have a vaccine. It's less and less likely we'll get back to normal life before summer. I'll add to that and say, when we get back to normal life, normal might be different than what it used to be. Dr. Ben Bonnie Henry also said that the first wave lasts weeks and then that there's potentially a second wave that comes in the fall. And so we need to maintain that vigilance. We need to stay on top of our precautions and we need to be making long-term plans um, because this isn't something that we're gonna wake up tomorrow and suddenly everything will be back to normal and everything is fine. Even if there is a vaccine that's produced, um, it has to go through trials, then it's about availability and mass production and who gets it first. Even that will take some time in order to make sure that we all get the protection that we need. I just want to jump in here and uh, give an encouragement, especially because we have so many managers and supervisors on the line. It's very difficult to do long-term planning. You know, as a manager and supervisor in lots of different frontline capacities, I know there's a tension between handling the daily, handling the emergency, <clears throat> making sure that everything, you know, right now is okay, and then having some space for yourself and your team to think about what kind of stuff you want to do long-term, what kind of ideas, what kind of strategies. It's very hard to carve out that time. But I just want to encourage you um, in any way that you can start to do that, um, you know, try work on that piece as a manager. Um, because as, as Corey just said, this isn't something that's just going to magically go away overnight. And we're going to burn out if we continue to respond um, on a two-week cycle. Um, so, yeah, that's it's not a challenge. It's just an encouragement to you. Um, we, we don't prioritize, prioritize long-term planning sometimes as managers because we're understaffed, under-resourced. And the, the work that we do, every you know, Corey's talking about his day yesterday. There's always someone at the window of your car or there's always another call or another 
OD or something going on. And so it's hard to have any time to reflect and plan. Um, so let's fight for that time. And it's so much easier to say it than it is to actually do it. And, you know, I've been, I've been saying for weeks now, Hey, everybody, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Make sure that you're pacing yourself. Make sure that you're taking care of yourself. And yesterday, after my, after my overdose experience, um, one of my coworkers checked in with me. And she said, Corey, when's the last time you had a day off? Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, I guess it's been 23 days straight. And, and I realized that it's so much easier to say, practice self-care, make sure you're setting boundaries, get the rest that you need than it is to actually do it because the folks who work in this field, they're givers. They give everything they can in order to make sure that the people they serve have a little bit more safety, a little bit more comfort, a little bit more advocacy. And so I have to acknowledge that sometimes when people say to you, make sure you self-care, that can feel a little disingenuous because what does self-care look like when you're living in your garage? What does self-care look like when you're pulling 15-hour days? We really need to make sure that we have these conversations frequently and we're finding a way to trade off with each other so that we can share the workload and we can support each other through the long run. We have to also acknowledge that when we get out of this crisis, we'll likely still be in an overdose crisis. And so for many of us, as acknowledged by some of the uh, comments that we received, this isn't just the COVID crisis for them. This is another crisis on top of one that they've been working tirelessly through for many years now. Mm-hmm. So how do I know if I'm sick? When you read this chart, it might seem a little bit convoluted, like, wow, COVID looks a lot like common cold. It looks like the flu. It looks like allergies. How do I actually know if I have COVID? What's important to know is that you don't need to be a microbiologist or a virologist in order to identify the top three hallmark symptoms. And those top three symptoms are fever, cough, and shortness of breath. I've worked very hard with my team to make sure that they have thermometers, to make sure that they understand those three symptoms, and to have a very simple protocol if they identify someone who has those symptoms so that we can move that person to isolation and find them a better place to be that's safer for them and safer for everyone else. And my hope is that you can develop a similar pathway as well. Um, And Corey, just on that note, um, a couple of questions. One is around... Uh, some organizations are using thermometers, but that's not a directive at this point, right? That's just a suggestion. That's just a suggestion. And, and, you know, the reason why I've done that with our staff is because I really want us to be that low barrier arm of public health. We're the best suited because we see our folks every single day to know if Joe's cough is different than his normal cough. Yeah. We're the best suited to know that if Mike's sickness is dope sickness or if it's a different kind of sickness. We're the ones who know our clients baseline better than anybody else. And so we're best suited to identify cases early and to get them to somewhere else. Because if we don't identify those cases, it's not just Mike that's going to get sick. It's everybody who shared a pipe with Mike. It's everybody who shared a tent with Mike. Yeah. And we need to make sure that we cut off that, that transmission as much as possible so that we can support the greater good of the population. Because there's a lot of folks in our in the clientele that we serve who are at really big risk for complications related to COVID. Yeah. Thank you for, for talking about that. And I I keep hijacking you here, but this is all about the questions today. Um, So there's a couple things around tests. Uh, Someone's asking about take home COVID tests and whether they're effective. And then the other bigger question is there's many 
Someone saying there's many homeless and shelter guests who are refusing to be tested despite being symptomatic. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so all we can do at that point in time, and I'll talk about what we do when we identify someone who's, who's potentially positive. Um, maybe I should not jump ahead and I'll, I'll respond to that sure. home test. Every piece of information that I get and that I provide to you comes directly from our local, provincial, and national public health authorities. I do my best not to get involved with uh, the social media scientists and and folks who are coming up with you know home kits and, and those types of things, because unless it becomes something that's recommended by our public health authorities, I don't want to give you that recommendation um, because there, there, maybe there's a potential for false negatives through these home tests. Maybe there's the potential for a false sense of security or or whatever it might be. And so um, my only encouragement to you in this respect is to make sure that you're doing what your local public health authority is advising you to do. A lot of folks aren't even being made eligible for tests right now, uh, especially in Victoria. I've noticed, um, you know, we... Yesterday, I identified someone who was positive for two symptoms, and so I called the public health authority. I spoke to them. I got recommendations from them. Then I spoke to BC Housing. We got them isolated. At no point in time was there a mention of getting this person a test, and that's because, one, there appears to be a significant test shortage, and two, testing is really being delegated towards healthcare providers and service workers, and then people who will end up hospitalized related to the test, uh, related to COVID. And so there's a very strict guideline that public health is using on when they should be testing people. If someone, if you've spoken to public health and they're advising that this person should be tested, and then that client is refusing to, being test, to be tested, you should be contacting public health and they should be taking the lead on this. Um, because unfortunately, public health, uh, especially in a time of crisis, ends up becoming rather authoritarian. Um, if it, contact tracing is more important than, um, you know, making sure that somebody, if they do or do not want to get tested, because we want to make sure that we're finding that link to the transmission and that we're cutting that off. And so um, you aren't the police. You can't force someone to get tested if you think that they should. You should be contacting public health because they have the authority to decide if that person needs to be tested. And if they do decide that that person needs to be tested, they should be taking the action to move forward to make sure it happens. It's important that you preserve your relationship and, and honor the autonomy of your clients. Yeah. And then the other just quick point is that I'll send this out as a link, but um, have your local health authority phone number handy. Um, I'll, I'll send out the link to uh, regional uh, health contacts. But as Corey just mentioned, you know, he's on the phone to public health pretty much every day. And that's a number that you need to have posted and make available to your staff and have it um, available. Yes, we have a specific contact in Victoria who's watching our vulnerable populations from the public health standpoint. She's very tired of getting phone calls from me, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm likely also very tired of giving her phone calls. So um, make sure you have that number. Make sure you know where your lines of communication are. And it should be directly to public health because they'll, want, they'll be the ones that can tell you, yeah, he needs to be isolated right away. And then you have that public health direction that you can move forward and you can advocate for uh, single room occupancy through BC housing or that you can get that person to a slightly more quarantined area of your shelter if you've delegated a space for people who are symptomatic. Uh, so make sure you have that phone number in, in your back pocket and ready to use. 
So what do you do if you're sick? If you have symptoms like fever, cough, or difficulty breathing and have traveled outside of Canada or have been exposed to someone who has COVID-19, you should definitely be avoiding contact with others. You should be seeing a healthcare provider as soon as possible. The recommendations now are to call 1-888-COVID-19, 1-888-COVID-19. That phone number is available on some of the infographics that I've made for this series uh, right at the bottom. Please make sure that you make use of it. Call if you if you can't get through, keep calling because they do have very busy lines, but this is a dedicated phone line in order to support you and to give you uh, better decision-making um, knowledge. There's also an online screening tool that you can use, and that is also posted at the bottom of the infographics. You can use that for yourself, or if a client comes in and you're suspecting that potentially they have COVID, just click through what symptoms they have, and it'll give you direction on what needs to be done as well. It also is an app that you can download on your phone, which is handy if you're an outreach worker. Um, oh, of course there's an app. Yeah. Of course there's an app that, that evolved out of the COVID crisis. I bet you there's probably quite a few COVID apps that are out there right now. Um, stick to your government ones, stick to your local public health authority ones. Um, but I'm sure that there's a lot of people who have, who have made some interesting software and technology out of this crisis. If you do end up going to um, see a healthcare provider, call them ahead of time so that they can make the necessary arrangements. There might be people on the in the waiting rooms who uh, are immune compromised, and they want to make sure that they're protecting them as well. Avoid emergency departments at all costs. Unless it is an emergency, do not go to the emergency department. Uh, they're bogged down, they're overwhelmed, uh, and they're really triaging like the highest level of acuity cases right now. You'll very likely end up sitting in a waiting room waiting to see someone and you have a higher likelihood of contracting something in that waiting room than you will of actually getting your problem solved. If you have symptoms, wear a mask. Contact tracing precautions are incredibly important and if you're a care provider, you should be triaged as a high priority to get a test. So onto the mask debate. Medical masks um, are, are something that are in hot demand, and it's something that's also created a lot of tension online and, and all across the world in terms of whether we should be masking or not. Luckily, Vancouver Coastal Health recently published PPE recommendations for healthcare personnel who are participating in patient care specifically related to community settings. This has also been made available uh, through, through your organizers, HSABC and Sarah, um, have made sure that you have access to this. And there's two specific pages on shelter precautions for PPE. That's on pages 10 and 11. So essentially what they're telling us though, is that, and, and you can read through all of this, um, but essentially what the, what the rule of thumb has become is that if you cannot maintain social distancing, if you cannot stay more than six feet away from people, you should be wearing a mask and you should be wearing eye protection. And that's a little bit different than what we talked about in the past because the recommendations have continued to change and evolve over time as we've learned more about masks and why they're effective. One of the reasons why these recommendations have changed is because we've recently discovered that there are a number of people who transmit the virus before they even have any symptoms or while they have mild symptoms. And so when you're wearing a mask, it's important to tell the people that you're working with that this is not to protect me against you. This is to protect you and everyone else against me if I potentially have it. 
because there's a significant cohort of people right now who are care providers, and we're finding out that they're the vectors for transmission. We really identified this when we started to look at trends in long-term care facilities, which have been really significantly impacted by the COVID crisis. And what they found is that there are care providers who are going from site to site to site to work, and that those are the mechanisms in which the disease is getting inside of those long-term care units through asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic care providers. And so if you are someone who you know, works multiple roles, there are recommendations to talk to your managers and coordinate so that maybe you dedicate all of your time at one site and another worker dedicates all their time at another site. So there isn't that cross-contamination that can potentially occur. And but actually, essentially, yeah, sorry, the BC government uh, went ahead and, and shut down for long-term care facilities anyway. They don't allow workers to move from site to site right now. Yeah, I received an email from the BC Nurses Union that said there's a provincial office, a provincial officer order now um, that if you are someone who works in long-term care, that you need to make sure that you notify them of all the sites that you work at, and they're going to give you direction on which site you should be at and make sure that you're not going over to other sites. And so we've really realized that, you know, the caregivers, the people who might not be as significantly impacted by COVID are ending up being the vehicles for transmission. And, and that's why those masks are so important. Yeah. And this apply. this is a provincial order. So it applies um, to interior health, to Vancouver health, to Fraser health um, across the province, even though there are less um, facilities uh, and less cases in more rural parts of the province. So essentially what we're telling people now is, is, is basically if you can't maintain social distancing, you need to be wearing a mask. You can wear the same mask throughout your whole shift, but if it becomes soiled or dirty, you need to, if it gets wet, then it loses its efficacy and you need to make sure that you're changing it. You should be wearing your eye protection throughout your whole shift. We purchased um, just those regular, um, I think they're in hardware stores, just those clear pl um, plastic glasses that everybody wears. And at the end of the shift, we make sure that we do a good clean of each of them. If you're doing direct client care or if you're touching anything, you need to make sure that you're wearing gloves. And it's really important to make sure that you're doing good hand hygiene before and after you wear your gloves. There's also a specific way to put on your mask and to don your PPE. And it's important that we talk about this first. The very first thing you should be putting on is your mask, then followed by your eye protection and your gloves are the last thing that you put on. At the end, you want to do things in the opposite order. You want to remove your gloves, wash your hands, take off your eye protection, and then remove your mask. It's really important that you do that so that you don't potentially risk touching your face with dirty hands. It's also important to talk about the difference between masks. Medical masks, surgical masks are the ones that we should be using. The only time we need an N95 mask is when we do something called an aerosolizing generating medical procedure. If you're using a bag valve mask on an overdose response, if you're using high flow oxygen or a non-rebreather mask, that's when you need to make sure you're wearing an N95, your, your eye protection gown and gloves. If you're not doing that, then eye protection, surgical or procedural mask, and gloves. So, Corey, do you want to just uh, put this in perspective for people um, and tell me about your overdose uh, situation and how you handled that in terms of PPE? Yeah, for sure. So while jogging to respond to the overdose, 
Um, I put on my, uh, and we'll talk about overdose response specifically in, in just a couple of minutes. Um, but I made sure that I have my hand pump with hand sanitizer in my pocket at all times, hand sanitized quickly. I put on my mask, I put on my eye protection, and then I put on my gloves. I showed up, I assessed the individual. I noted that they still had some respirations, but they were very shallow and not very uh, frequent and that they still had a pulse. And then I went straight to naloxone. Now there is recommendations that you can use a face shield and the best way to give respirations if you have to is through the face shield that's provided in your take-home naloxone kit. However, at this point in time, they cannot guarantee absolute protection using that face shield. And so we're really advising people to go straight to Narcan unless there's no other options and respirations are necessary. The reason why we don't know much about the face shield right now is because it's a one-way valve. And so while you may be protected, and even that protection is tenuous, they're not sure how much it's going to protect you, but the person you're responding to is not protected because if you have COVID and you don't know it, you're breathing through that one-way valve that ends up going inside of that individual's lungs. And so at this point in time, a lot of organizations, a lot of consumption sites, a lot of outreach are going straight to naloxone and calling 911. And at this point in time, that is the absolute safest way to proceed because when EMS shows up, they show up in full gown, N95, face shield, gloves, and they can take over. I know that can be really stressful for people because we're used to providing supportive oxygen, supplementary oxygen. We're used to giving breaths. We don't want to jump straight to naloxone because we don't want to put someone into withdrawal. But until we have clear directions, it's very important that we're keeping our staff and our clients as safe as possible. It's almost like practicing harm reduction in a public health context. What's the least amount of harm I can do by responding to this individual while still making sure that they're going to be safe and that they're going to live through this? Mm -hmm. It's a whole way of looking at things, but it's important that we make sure that we do that. Thanks for illustrating that, Corey. It's appreciated. No problem. So then comes this weird question where people are like, should I just wear a mask all the time? Should I be wearing a mask when I go to the grocery store? Should I be wearing a mask if I go for a jog? If I walk the dog, should I be wearing a mask? And there's so much discrepancy out there because as people who are paying attention to the media know, um, Donald Trump just recently advised everyone uh, to wear masks. And then he also imposed tariffs and restrictions on mask producers from shipping masks to Canada because they're in such a shortage. And I'm going to avoid talking about my feelings about this, but I wanted to make sure that I clarified, do you need to wear a mask all the time? And so I reached out to the Public Health Agency of Canada through the BCCDC, and this is the directions that I was given. Medical masks, including surgical medical procedural masks and respirators, must be kept for healthcare workers and others providing direct care to COVID-19 patients. Wearing a non-medical mask, for example, a homemade cloth mask, in the community has not been proven to protect the person wearing it. Strict hygiene and public health measures, including frequent hand washing and physical distancing, will reduce your chance of being exposed to the virus. Wearing a non-medical mask is an additional measure you can take to protect others around you. Wearing a non-medical mask is another way to cover your mouth and your nose to prevent respiratory droplets from contaminating other surfaces. If you're wearing a non-medical mask and it helps you feel safer and it stops you from touching your face and your nose and your mouth, then that's good. But remember, don't touch your face. 
A lot of people who wear masks are constantly adjusting their mask. They're touching the bridge of their nose. They're adjusting the ear loops. They're pulling it down when they talk to someone or lifting it over their head when they're going to eat their meal. That is ineffective and will actually increase your risk. It is important to understand that non-medical masks have limitations and need to be used safely. So what we're telling you, essentially, is if you can't maintain social distancing and you want to wear a mask and it's a cloth mask, then please feel free to do so. We will no longer recommend against mass mask wearing, but we need to make sure that the surgical, medical, and N95 masks are kept for workers. I have shared a video from the American Surgeon General on how to make a really easy cloth mask, and I believe Sarah is going to share that as well. Yeah, I'll do that uh, in the comments. Um, just that PDF on the previous page, um, is that in the handouts you sent me, or should I grab that for people? The, um, yes, the difference I between the masks, the understanding the difference one. Uh, it's called PPE recommendations underscore community April 4th, 2020. And it is in the handouts. I can see it right here. Perfect. And that includes the graphic with the different kinds of masks. No, the graphic is separate. I pulled that just to make sure people understood the difference between them. All right. Uh, awesome. But I can send you that one as well if you want. It's OK. I'll find it. No worries. So we talked about COVID uh, overdose response, and so I'm not gonna spend too much time dwelling here because we'll likely have some questions and some follow-up questions about that when we get to that point. And I wanna make sure we're dedicating time to questions. This is the revised Vancouver Coastal Health Overdose Response infographic. Um, and I've shared that as well with Sarah. Uh, I recommend that you use this because it's really clear, it's really easy to understand, and, and it provides that clarity that we've all been looking for when it comes to a proper overdose response. So all staff in contact with participants must wear the following PPE. Medical masks are applied at the start of the shift and only changed when soil or damp. Goggles and face shields are to be removed at the end of the shift and cleaned according to appropriate guidelines. Gloves are changed at every interaction with a participant. I cannot stress this enough. I constantly see people wear gloves and they're wearing the same glove for multiple hours and sometimes even for a whole shift. Gloves are not self-cleaning. I'll say that again, gloves are not self-cleaning. They become soiled, just like your hands, and they are not protective. I see a lot of people who have their pens out while they're wearing their gloves, and then they take their gloves off, but they're still playing with their pen and touching their pen to their mouth. Gloves are used every time you have an individual interaction with someone, and you need to perform hand hygiene in between wearing them. This is just a reminder here about proper positioning when we're doing an overdose response. Uh, because we've switched back to doing the face shield, some people are uncomfortable. Using the bag valve mask and using um, a pocket mask are much easier to provide breaths. And the reason for that is because they use pressure in order to force air into the path of least resistance, which happens to be into your lungs. When you use the face shield, however, it doesn't apply that pressure. And so you need to make sure that you have the head tilt chin lift just right so that you can open up the airways for the individual that you're providing breaths for. Those pocket valve masks that we've become so used to using, the reason why they're, they're potentially concerning is because when you apply that pressure to push the air in, when you pull the mask away, that pressure releases and it could potentially produce an aerosolizing of the virus. 
And if anything becomes aerosolized, then people need to be wearing N95 masks. They need to be wearing eye protection. They need to be wearing gowns and gloves. And you need to make sure that you've cleared the room of any other client because they can get sick from it as well. The recommendations from Vancouver Coastal Health is that you need to clear the room out after that for at least an hour and perform a terminal clean to make sure that there's no viral particles that are living on the surfaces. It's very complicated. It's very trying, especially for uh, consumption sites or shelters that deal with overdose frequently. And so that's why we've, one of the other reasons why we've moved so quickly to naloxone and 911 as our best response. Yeah, you kind of just answered a bunch of questions that came up, but I'm just going to summarize again here. Um, and I'll give an example that someone's given. So this is from uh, the downtown east side in Vancouver. Um, they experience multiple ODs every night, and they've had to create their own emergency gurneys for transporting individuals in medical crises out to the street to ensure that life-saving O2 does not result in the quarantining of a life-saving shelter. And they are talking about needing tools um, for sheltering environments because I guess they're, they're using bag valve masks um, in this context. Yeah, that, and that's incredibly challenging for sure. I know of several consumption spaces that are still using bag valve masks. They have the appropriate PPE for sure, but their system still isn't as safe as it can be. Um, a lot of places have really rapid air circulation, which helps, but there still isn't a guarantee. There are some studies that have shown that when aerosolized, the virus can live in the air for up to three hours. Now, those are in ideal pressured situations to, to produce those results, but it just speaks to the elusive nature of this virus. And so it's hard. This is like going back to the early days of naloxone and overdose response when all we had was a kit. And it's very challenging, especially for those high volume services. And so we're just doing the best we can. And, and if you don't have the supplies that you need, I'll reiterate to contact BC Housing and to let them know that you don't have the supplies that you need because they've made it very clear that they're going to be helping people access the supplies and the PPE that they need. And so we need to apply that pressure because I've been told many, many times that overdose prevention sites and shelters are now being made a priority, but I'm still not seeing it. And so we need to keep applying that pressure and we need to be advocates to make sure that we have the necessary PPE and support in order to support people. Yeah, and so just to be very clear, at this time, public health authorities are not recommending the use of oxygen or bag valve masks or anything that requires extensive PPE and clearing the room. Exactly. So anything that's deemed a bag valve mask, uh, a non-rebreather, which includes your pocket valve mask, or any oxygen that goes above 6 to 10 liters per minute is considered an aerosolizing procedure. And so they're not recommending the use of those strategies at this point in time. What they're saying is naloxone, call emergency services. And if you choose to give breaths, use the take-home naloxone kit face shield. Okay. Thank you. And thanks for all your questions. And then just briefly, because we're coming back to talking about cleaning your hands. Um, what are your thoughts on using hand sanitizer on gloves to extend their use? I do not recommend that. Um, the reason for that is, uh, and I've seen some places do it. I had a lengthy conversation with a grocery store manager the other day um, who, who was advising their staff do that. 
unless we get that recommendation from our public health authorities, I wouldn't recommend it. That's because sometimes uh, gloves can become degraded uh, and worn down by the use of hand sanitizer. And then they become more porous. And essentially, not only do you have dirty gloves, but you also have a dirty hand underneath those gloves as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that, Corey. No, that's that's perfectly okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move relatively quickly through these applications in a shelter context. Um, we we kind of have moved past the preparation stages, but it's important to continue prepping, especially for staff shortages. A lot of people are worried about what happens if I get sick. How are we going to be able to maintain services? And so it's really important for managers to understand what their baseline minimum staffing is, what staff they can redeploy, and what staff maybe can't be in the room at this point in time because of pre-existing conditions, and to continue to try and cycle people out so that they don't burn out as well. We need to make sure that we're doing appropriate response planning. And there's a very good Vancouver Coastal Health checklist in the event of a pandemic. It's it's dated back to 2006, but all of the criteria and all of the protocols still ring true. That's been made available in a previous presentation, and I believe it's on the HSA BC website. We want to make sure that we're promoting those prevention practices. So those top strategies that we talked about, social distancing, hand hygiene, regular disinfecting. I talk to people all the time about... Um, you know, if you're worried about masks, then be firm about social distancing. You can have conversations with people and still be mindful of six feet. What I've noticed is that our clients and that our community members and the people in the camps, they're starting to get used to that. They're no longer taking it personally when I tell them if they can step back a little bit or if they see me take a step back. They're starting to get used to that. And that's because repetition works. And we need to continue to leverage our relationships to let them know this isn't about you. It's about me trying to protect you in case I'm potentially sick. We've talked already about some of the uh, the screening criteria, but I'll go into a little bit more detail here with you. You're screening for those top three symptoms, fever, cough, which is usually dry, and shortness of breath. If you identify those symptoms or if an individual has had recent contact with a positive case or a presumptive positive case, then your next step is to call public health. Public health will give you direction and make sure it's your local public health authority. Public health will give you direction on if that individual needs to be isolated, if that person needs to be tested and how to go about that process. And if they advise that this person needs to be isolated, I would recommend contacting BC Housing to see if there's an available isolated space in order to get this individual. We have some very good news that just came out today and I'm going to uh, super professionally read it right off of my phone because it was given to me. Uh, when did you give it to me, Sarah? Five minutes before the presentation started. Yeah. <laughs> because it just came out today. Uh, so to support British Columbians who need to, a place to self-isolate and to reduce the spread of COVID-19, the province is partnering with local governments, nonprofits, and the hotel industry. And so far, more than 900 new spaces have been secured at 23 sites, including hotels, motels, and community centers throughout BC. I won't read you the whole article, but the important takeaway from there is that they've heard our concerns and they're doing what they can in order to create more spaces so that within your space, you can do proper social distancing. So really lean into this when you speak to folks on BC housing, when you speak to your local homelessness providers like the Coalition to End Homelessness, make sure you tell them that we need to get a space for this person because there likely is new spaces becoming available every single day. 
just a little uh, reminder about um, cleaning and disinfecting. Uh, if you don't have access to the supplies you need, you can also make your own approved cleaners and disinfectants. This document here from the World Health Organization is also available through HSABC, and it's about how to produce recommended hand rub formulations. We have community organizations that are brewing uh, alcohol sanitizer for us and then putting them into small bottles so that we can hand them out to people so that they can do frequent hand washing. It's really important to get creative. There's local distilleries that have converted their, their operations to making hand sanitizer. And that's where this um, mobilization of resources is really important. Find out what in your local area is available, get creative. I put a call out to the newspaper and did an interview with Victoria News um, asking for local businesses like uh, nail salons that have closed down or um, elective surgical clinics, all these places that have gloves and masks that are not in use. And by the next day, I had 75 offers on my on my inbox because people want to help. But they just don't know what is the best way to help. OK, and so that's when we really need to make sure that we're getting creative when we're trying to find supports and resources. And just a quick note about that announcement um, about the 900 spaces. Um, they just had a press conference, so we don't know yet the clarity around what the barriers are going to be to accessing those hotel rooms. So consumption, smoking, pets, couples. Um, but we will keep you updated on that and hopefully by next week's check-in and on our website, we'll have some links to um, what their programming is going to be and what the barriers or the requirements for access will be. So, Yes, when we say that the updates are coming literally every minute, they are coming fast and furious. And so Sarah and I, we have a strong line of communication where we try to identify these news pieces, these updates, and we want to get them to you as soon as possible. And so because this one just came in five minutes before today's presentation, we will make sure that it is a point of focus on the next presentation so that you can have better understanding of how to use these new resources. This is just a little bit of a recap here. Um, this FAQ along with the what about working in the shelter is available. It's been updated given the new recommendations regarding mask use. Um, so please make sure that you, if you're a manager, um, hand these out to your staff so that they can have something to quickly reference. Um, and if you're looking for something different, if there's something that isn't meeting your needs, if it's not, if it's too high level and you want better understandable information or, or, or something like that, please reach out to us and we can try to make sure that we can create something that's custom tailored to the local context that you're experiencing. A reminder about Safe Supply. I've been doing a lot of work regarding Safe Supply. Uh, it is something that's available to people now. Uh, it's something that in, in certain health authorities, especially in the downtown east side, people have had success in accessing. It is not as widespread available as we would like it right now. And it's really important that we try to leverage the ability to do Safe Supply now so that it can exist post-COVID. Right now, we can get people, if they have an existing provider and they have a pharmacy, um, they can phone their provider and they can request a prescription. Um, if that provider is hesitant, because sometimes prescribers are, are a little uncomfortable with this or they're not familiar with the new guidelines, there's actually a number at the bottom of this handout for the BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors that you can call and they can help you with some advocacy. They can help support you find 
the best way to get your client onto safe supply. It's not perfect right now. And I can tell you at least in Victoria, we're working on a broader safe supply initiative, a lower barrier one that'll be accessible to people who are experiencing poverty and homelessness and precarious housing. But for now we have something that we can leverage. And this handout is also available. Um, we walk around on outreach and we hand them out to people. If they're having trouble accessing their provider, we make a phone call for them. Um, if there's someone who's hesitant, we ask if we can speak to that physician and try to help bridge the gap uh, in understanding and, and, and elate some of those fears. Um, and that's where we really need to make sure we're dusting off our advocacy hats to make sure that we can get people onto a safer supply because I've known for sure that overdoses have gone up in, in Vancouver, but now we're starting to see it on the island. And that's because of the, the lack of available substances. That's about the, the volatility of the market, the increasing cost of drugs. Um, many drugs are being cut with different substances because there's not as much available right now. So there's a lot of benzos in the drugs right now. Uh, and benzos don't work on over on naloxone doesn't work on benzodiazepines. And so it's really creating challenges. I've personally responded to four overdoses in the last three days, just in an outreach. So I'm like finding people who are overdosing and it's very scary. And so this is our call to make sure that we can get safe supply as accessible as possible um, and to really troubleshoot with our local providers, prescribers and pharmacists so that we can get something established for the long term. And then just ending with a little bit of harm reduction tips. Um, I go through this quite a bit right um, quite often. So I'm just going to do the Cole's notes of it with you. But this new sheet here from Toronto Public Health is available as well uh, in your handouts through HSABC. Talk to people about cutting down if they can, not because uh, you want them to stop using, but because there's such scarcity that they might need to hold on to their stuff a little bit longer than they usually do. The other reason is because binging lowers your immune system. And so if we can do consistent uses at smaller amounts, uh, it lessens the likelihood that someone will contract COVID when they come into contact with it. Cut down on all of your sharing, not just sharing needles, not just your pipes, but joints, baggies, all of those things. We want to make sure that people have their own stuff. Um, and that means being really, really, really um adamant about your your harm reduction distribution when you talk to people do you have a pipe where how, how when's the last time that you've changed your pipe out are you sharing your pipe here take two anything we can do in order to make sure that people aren't sharing at this point in time is really important this goes for everyone but i like to say it at least twice during a presentation stop touching your face uh, make sure that you don't touch your face touching your face is something that the the more you pay attention to other people, the more you realize people are touching their face constantly. And we need to make sure that we, we're really um, accountable about that and that we're reminding each other on a regular basis. I'm sure my staff hate me by now, but every time I talk to them, I'm like, oh, hey, Jacqueline, stop touching your face. Oh, hey, nice to see you. Stop touching your face. And, and at first it was kind of like, oh, Corey. But now everybody's like, oh, you're right. Thank you. Because we've started to see the urgency and we need to make sure that we're holding each other accountable and to know that it's not about being bossy. It's not about uh, being paternalistic. It's about supporting each other and having each other's backs at this really challenging time. Make sure that you wash your surfaces before you prepare your drugs. Don't use alone, but don't use in a crowd. That's very challenging for many people. And so it's important that we set up 
some kind of informal check-in. What we do at the camps is we have some informal folks, uh, leaders at the camp, and I talk to them and they tell me, you know, this person's used in their tent recently. And so I'll go by and I'll just knock on the tent and say, hey, are you okay? And they'll give me a yes or a no. And if they don't respond, then I'm checking on them to see if, if there's a potential overdose to be dealt with. It does take more work. It does take more resources. It does take more human power for sure. Um, but these are trying times and we need to make sure that we're supporting our folks because they are still at significant risk for overdose. Okay, so we'll move on to questions. I don't, I'm gonna flip this on to Sarah here because there's been some set questions that have been given to me previously, uh, but I also wanna make sure that we answer the questions to the people who are live on the call right now. Um, so what, what do you think in this, this last little bit of time that we have, Sarah, would be most effective? Um, well, I'm going to ask you a specific question and it just draws on your knowledge of what you're doing right now. And then you can uh, get into the ones that have been submitted previously. And then if any other ones come up, I'll, I'll relay them. We'll kind of do a tag team thing. Um, okay. So, and we are going to try this right now. If, if it doesn't work for everybody, that's cool. I'm just going to put myself on webcam. Hey, everyone. I'm Sarah, and Corey's going to come on too, so that you can see our faces as we're talking here. There's Corey in his garage. Now you all get to see my my garage bunker where, <laughs> I, where I live when I'm not working right now. This yeah. Is, is day 15 in the bunker. Uh, it's it's quite nice. So it's actually not doesn't look bad. My my background is a bit more cluttered than yours. I'm in my office here. Um, okay, so this is a really good specific question, and it relates to harm reduction. So, Corey, do you have tactics for working with doctors that are reluctant to prescribe agonist therapy, particularly stimulants? Um, even though there's a provincial mandate for the access to safe supply, you know, on the ground, it might be a different story. Yeah, absolutely. I, to be honest, I think stimulant agonist therapy is the least um, acceptable to, to prescribers on a broad on a broad respect. You know, people understand um, opioid agonist therapy quite well. They know that even if someone's going to continue using street drugs, if they're on OAT, um, their likelihood of overdosing is going to go down because there isn't any big shifts in their tolerance. Um, there's big pushes for managed alcohol programs because people are withdrawing from alcohol and they're having seizures. But then we have stimulants and people are really reluctant to prescribe them, even though there's good evidence for the use of them. Um, and, and also that there's this provincial order. So what I can say is I have a lot of individual conversations with prescribers at this point in time. I try to understand where their fears are coming from and explain to them the evidence and the rationale behind it. If I can't get them on board, I do make use of that BC Yukon Association of Drug War Survivors uh, advocacy line uh, to let them know that, you know, there's a prescriber who's not willing to, to, to provide. And then in the broader um, BC CDC document um, about safe supply, there's also a list of phone numbers for the rapid access addictions clinics, which you can phone. And they're supposed to be able to provide you direction to a prescriber who will provide um, that safe supply. And then on top of that, we've been working higher level at the advocacy lens. Right. And, and what we've been doing is we've been working with the College of Physicians and Pharmacists so that they can release a statement that supports physicians and, and pharmacists in providing safe supply. 
because what we believe is that it's so new and it's so fresh that doctors are probably still a little bit worried about what this means for their license, what their ability to practice if they're going to go down this road. And so we're working on making sure that the College of Physicians and the College of Pharmacists are providing reassurance to those providers and knowing, yes, this is something that can be done. We encourage you to do it, especially in the face of a dual healthcare crisis. And I would encourage everyone on this call to really be an advocate at any level that you can, whether it's an individual conversation with a provider, whether you're a manager and you can speak to the health authority or the public officers of health to really push this on people that this isn't an option anymore. This is something you should be doing because it's backed by evidence and by ethics. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you. Uh, why don't you hit up a few of those questions that came in and um, I'll just monitor the question window here as well. Sure. I think we talked about, we did talk, cover a couple of these about working at multiple sites. Um, okay. A provider sent some staff to get tested and they were rejected at the testing site. Can our sector and field be considered as essential services? Well, you are an essential service because you are working right now at a time when everybody who's non-essential has been told to stay at home. And again, this is a mix of both advocacy and professional practice. So make sure that you have the opportunity um, uh, to speak to your public health authority and ask them, why aren't we getting tests available for people? Explain to them that if you can't get a test, my staff have to stay at home for 14 days of isolation and I won't have enough staff to run my run my site and get them to prioritize it. I got tested right at the start of this COVID crisis uh, because I was symptomatic after I was on an international flight and I called BCCBC every flipping day (laughs) and I told them I'm a healthcare provider. I need my test results back because I need to get back to work. And that pressure worked and I was able to get my results sooner. What I will also say is that they're not doing a lot of tests right now, and it might have to do with testing scarcity. But what I've also been told is that if you are not symptomatic, they will not test you because a test will not show positive if you don't have symptoms. So if the test is essentially useless, unless you have symptoms, if you think you've come into contact with it and you want to test just to be sure, that test won't produce uh, a viable result because you need to actually have the symptoms in order to produce a positive result. Right. And uh, just some feedback here. Um, even when people are telling uh, them that they're essential services, they get pushback. And um, they, they're, uh, this particular manager is sending her staff with a letter, and it's still difficult. So I think maybe right now we just acknowledge that it's harder to get tested than we think, Hey. Yeah, I mean, if I have the ability to just uh, ch- change what their testing criteria is, then then I would for sure. But it definitely seems like the priority has been shifted to people in hospital care and into long-term care, which is unfortunate because, as, as I've said many times before in these presentations, uh, the folks that we serve were not the original risk factor for this virus. They mm-hmm. weren't the people who were engaging in in international travel or things like that. But when push comes to shove when all of this ends, they'll likely be the most impacted by this virus. Yeah. And that's because we already work in a sector where we're resource scarce, where we don't get the supports we need, where the decisions are slow and mixed with politics. And again, we're seeing that trend happen with COVID. And so, um, you know, on top of doing the best you can to support your staff, keep making sure that you're advocating to be considered that essential service because we are essential services. The work that you do is invaluable to the people you support, 
And without necessary staffing and appropriate PPE, we can see some really bad things happen with the folks that we serve. Yeah, I mean, let's just take a minute here to acknowledge uh, hopefully that we've answered a lot of your questions and given you some updated information. Um, but I just want to say, having been in this work for a long time and Corey, you're currently doing it. It's friggin' hard. <laughs> like, you know, and maybe we could just end, uh, you know, I'll, I'll wait for more questions to come in, but maybe you could just talk to me a little bit about what you do when you before you go to work in the morning and how you get yourself ready for another day of overdoses and provincial directives and phone calls and, and tents and all that stuff. Just oh maybe my. just, I'm, we can start, uh, you know, back at the baseline, right? Cause there's a lot of information. There's a lot of uh, shared practice and there's a lot of overwhelming stuff. So let's just hear a bit about how you, how you're coping with that. Yeah. I mean, so you know, I, I would like to say that I'm a, a perfect example of someone who sets boundaries, but but obviously I'm I'm not. And so, um, what I can tell the people is is celebrate the small wins. Like you know, I I wake up in the morning and before I start looking at COVID news and all of that stuff, um, through the little glass door in my garage, I have breakfast with my with my mm -hmm. kids and with my wife, and we yeah. just talk about anything not COVID related. Um, and, and make sure that we have a little bit of a grounding session just to talk to each other and, and make sure that everybody's feeling okay. Um, I set up a, a punching bag in my garage and I make sure that I do some regular exercise, even if it's just for 15, 20 minutes. Um, the punching bag is particularly helpful because this has been a very frustrating process. So it's really important to make sure that you find a, an outlet to make sure that you're um, getting those frustrations out in a, in a healthy way, not in a way that ends up uh, creating more tension at work. Then I leave for work and, and when I'm at work, I'm obviously 100% on the whole time. Um, but when I come home, I have a very rout set routine as well. Um, I do the whole COVID precautions where I strip down completely, I go shower um, and, and do my laundry right away so that I don't have any potential contaminants coming into the house. But then after that, I just give myself some time. I watch a movie or I have a phone call with a friend or with a family member. I've probably been more connected to family right now than I've ever been in my life. Yeah. Um, and that's because it's really easy to just go down the rabbit hole of COVID and everything is doom and gloom. The numbers continue to rise. The recommendations change and it feels like we're in this point of in uncertainty so it's really important to ground yourself and know when all this is said and done, what's the most important thing to me? It's the care that I provide to the people that I work with. It's my family and it's my own personal health and safety. And so personal health and safety means trying to find those quick little wins for self-care. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell people like take a bubble bath or, you know, like no. journal or, or some of those things, because when people tell me to do that, I'm internally rolling my eyes right away. Maybe that works for you. Um, find what self-care means to you and schedule a little bit of time in order to commit to that. Thanks for that reflection. I know that these things might seem small in the face of what we're dealing with, but I really liked what you said about what matters. Like, so um, in this work, it can be overwhelming, but if we come back to what matters, you know, for me, it's, it's helping people, helping them, uh, 
get healthy, stay healthy and thrive and just improving their, their daily existence. And so, um, I hope that, uh, everybody on the line is able to take a minute to kind of think about what it is that you want to accomplish every day. And it might not be knowing everything, um, or knowing all the information, but maybe it's, maybe it's being there for your staff. Um, maybe it's, uh, sorry, I lost my video there. Maybe it's, uh, taking that time to do that huddle in the morning. Maybe it's being the one point person that knows the, the least amount of information that you need every day to do your job. And I'm just going to end by, um, Thanking everybody for their time today and for being present and for your important questions. Please keep sending us questions so that we can try to field them and we can try to help you problem solve. Um, my, my whole goal in this and Sarah's and HSABC is to be that place of support, is to be a regular, consistent place you can go to for updates, for clarification. Because like I've said time and time again, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's important that we make sure that we're supporting each other because we are all in this together. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Corey. Absolutely. Um, there's just a little picture here and a reminder of what those three symptoms are. And um, this is uh, one of Corey's many jobs. So you can always send him an email uh, if you'd like to follow up with him from today or at any point. And uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about this. Here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's always important to end on a slide about hand washing. Um, there's there's a lot of creative ways to to talk to your staff about frequent hand washing and, and make sure that they're accountable to it. Um, make sure that you, when you are washing your hands that you're doing it properly. Um, get a poster like this, put it up in your workplace, um, because a lot of people just do like a quick splash and dash. Um, and it's really important that, that thorough hand washing gets through all the nooks and crannies of your hands. Hand washing will forever be the single greatest thing that we can do in order to protect ourselves. And recent stats from COVID show that effective hand washing reduces transmission by up to 40%. Nice. All right. And here's some additional resources as well. Um, this PowerPoint will be available uh, for you on our website because we had so many handouts today. Um, I wasn't able to include it and there were a few other ones that I thought were a little bit more uh, relevant for the moment, but we'll be posting this right away. Um, and there's some references, which you will also be able to see on our website. It's two pages of references. Two, uh, we're going to get to two already. <laughs> yeah. You guys are all working hard and probably working overtime. So um, if you can't join us in person for those, they're all available here. Um, usually it takes me about a day or two to edit the video and get it up there. But um, if you click on the Coronavirus Disease 2019 sector on our web our website, which is over here on the right hand side, all of the resources that we keep providing with you, providing you with, all of the handouts from today, um, all of the recordings will be up there for you to take a look at. As well, um, this is brand new. Um, we will be releasing this as a podcast. Basically, it will be the audio version of our webinars, and so we're working on getting that up in the next couple of days so you can listen in your car or on your headphones or on your break and you don't have to necessarily watch on the screen um yeah <laughs> i mean i know there's a ton of stuff out there 
Um, but our goal and our role at the moment is to really help you sort through it. So please do contact us. There's a number there. Um, you can send us an email at info at hsa.bc.ca or jim.mandolin at hsa.bc or slash dash bc.ca. Um, we shape our content every week based on what you're asking about. Also, um, Corey is available as well. I'll just put his info up there if you want to talk to him. Uh, there we go. And yeah, I, I was really, we're going to say goodbye now, but I just want to say I, I was really moved by some of the things that you shared in that reflection portion at the beginning. Um, we're shouldering a lot of responsibility and there's some anger around the government actions and supports, the way that other people are behaving, the frustration around not having the equipment that you need, and the times that you might just be in your car having a cry. Um, I've been there. I continue to be there. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time to join us today. But more importantly, thank you for showing up. Thank you for showing up. Because it really does come back to why we do the work that we do. And I'm feeling emotional right now, but that's okay. I'm going to go with it. And that is we're here for people who are vulnerable, who can't navigate the system, who have trauma, who have addictions, who um, just all manner of things. So thank you for taking the time to learn more, to update your own information, to share what you're feeling. Um, and I hope that this is a good week for you. And uh, join us again. We'll see you again. We'll see you next week. Maybe you'll, some of you will be back on the line with me tomorrow. Um, and don't hesitate to get in touch with us. All right. Stay safe, everyone, and take care. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues, and clients, are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do, and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca, and you can find COVID-19-specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.